In this, the last of our sermons in the Heaven Matters series, I'm going to attempt to answer the most difficult question I receive from you. It's not that the question is difficult to answer so much as the answer is difficult to hear, much less to embrace. The question is not hard. The answer is. So, with that happy task, let's ask this question and explore some solutions together. Are you ready? Here's the question. How can I be happy in heaven with loved ones in hell? I'm sorry, my voice is trying to leave me today. <clears throat> Appreciate Jonathan for getting me some water. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's more where that came from. How can I be happy in heaven with loved ones in hell? Would you all say that's a, that is a good question? Would you agree? All right. Question is not hard. The answer is hard. And there are several solutions. This, and by the way, several of you asked this question in writing. And it's been a problem, if you will, for a long time in Christendom and even before. And uh, there have been several solutions attempted to answer this really uncomfortable question. One of the solutions that is faulty is something called universalism. You all ever heard of universalism? Universalism basically says... Uh, everybody gets in regardless. Right? Everyone's in. God loves everybody. Stand, you know, the whole, everything we've heard, Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of those who have put his faith, their faith and trust in him, all of that is great, but nobody ultimately goes to hell. And, you know, honestly, uh, that whole concept of universalism came about because of this question. We couldn't bear the thought of being in heaven without the people that we love. Um, and I've had a lot of good, brilliant minds have worked hard. I remember a dear friend of mine who's probably one of the most intellectual. His, his brain, I'm envious of his mind. And uh, years ago... Uh, when we were going through some of this, some good hard theology, he uh, he struggled with this one, and he worked, he put his brain power, which I'm going to tell you is significant, into coming up with a biblical case for universalism. Everybody makes it, and he 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 would think he had it, and he would call me, and I'd say, yeah, well, what about this passage? And he would go back to the drawing board and stuff, and that lasts about six months. He tried to come up with, it, and he couldn't do it. Because it's not in the Bible. It's something developed from the heart of man. Here's another, uh, and, and all these kind of, it's funny that this one question feeds, is the foundation of most of your other questions. And all of some of the weird stuff you've heard about heaven. Um, here's the other one, is that God uses a divine amnesia. That literally God removes their memory from our minds. So, we don't even remember them anymore. And in that way, we can be happy and enjoy heaven. Um, and again, it's an attempt to fix a problem with the best solution we can come up with. And that divine amnesia kind of makes sense. But the Bible, doesn't, the Bible doesn't declare that or even hint at it. Randy Alcorn, in his book, I have it here today, so I'm going to read you a quote out of it. By the way, uh, I would encourage all of you to get you a copy of this book. Um, it will challenge you, but it will also answer all your questions about heaven. And I've done a lot of my research out of it. But in this book on heaven, here's what Randy said. He said this, happiness in heaven is not based on ignorance, but on perspective. Now, I want, you to, I want to say that again, and I want you to ponder it with me for a second. Your happiness in heaven and mine is not going to be based on ignorance. So this divine amnesia thing does not fly. It's not going to be based on what we don't know. 
Instead, it's going to be based on our perspective. And what is perspective? It's the lens through which you view everything, including your nearest loved ones who aren't there. We like to call it here our worldview. I don't know what we'll call it there because we'll all have the same. <laughs> our, our kingdom view, maybe? Uh, and it'll be through the lens of God. So I, I've tried to keep this simple. And honestly, I, I even changed some of my uh, declarative statements in here, my propositions. I've changed the language of it because um, of, my ch of children. Is Jack in here? I don't see him. Oh, there you are, Jack. Okay. Uh, I try to write literally as much as I can. I try to write for Jack. Someone around, has enough understanding of about uh, seven years old. He's seven, right? <laughs> I almost said six. I thought he's going to be in trouble. And I figure if a seven-year-old can get it, the rest of you have no excuse. Amen. And that was hard with this. But I do try to communicate this at a level that, that even, even our children and so many of you, and I, I commend you as parents, have your kids in here. This is, this is good. Um, but I want them to understand. So I've, I've, I've even in the format of this tried to simplify this as much as I can. So, so let, me, let me deal with, with some problems and, and maybe some solutions. And really it's just two problems. The first problem is the problem of sorrow in heaven. Is there going to be sorrow in heaven? What do you think? No. Well, and yes. But no. See, here's the problem. It is a yes and no answer. When you delineate which heaven we're talking about. Present heaven... Would you remember this discussion, present heaven, where, where God is now, Christ is seated at his right hand, versus eternal heaven, the new earth that's coming. And where we take, we, we say no, but we must define our terms. When understanding the new earth, eternal heaven, the answer is absolutely no. There will be no sorrow. And that comes from this verse. I think it's in there. Maybe it's not. Revelation 21.4. There it is. Would you read that with me? All right. Pretty clear, isn't it? No more sorrow. Is that what you see there? Me too. Problem. Or not problem, question. What's the timeline? When does this statement take place? Pardon? Definitely in the future. If you'll look back in your immediate context in Revelation 21, um, it's not on the screen, but look in your Bibles. Look at the first verse. John says, now I saw a what, church? A new heaven. It's right there in your Bible. And a new earth. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, I believe that's what's being prepared right now and we know as present heaven. Um, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You get this picture? We're standing on the new, what? Earth. When this is proclaimed. And, this, and literally present heaven, the throne room of God in this gorgeous city that we tend to think of as heaven, is coming down and I was taught was going to hover above the earth and we would go back and forth. That is not what the text says. Look at the next verse. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, look at these, don't miss this, is with man. I believe that New Jerusalem is going to have a physical location and address on the new earth. It's a giant city, as big as, as wide as the United States. Really would... It's about the size, the landmass size of the United States squared. Can you imagine? It's going to have a physical address on this new earth. And then it says this, And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then we get to verse number four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
So we had to understand some things in context. Number one is that this verse, this beautiful reality of no more uh, tears or death or sorrow or crying and no more pain, for all that old stuff is gone, that happens after something called the Great White Throne Judgment and a resurrected, remade new earth and new heaven. It's at the end of all things. I call that the eternal heaven. We're going to live on that new earth with God who will live in a city with a physical address called the New Jerusalem. Am I clear? What about present heaven? What about present heaven? Is there sorrow or angst in present heaven? Are there... How does that work? I think, I think the answer could be a maybe. So the question, is there sorrow in present heaven? I would answer maybe. Um, and here, here, let me give you some, some thoughts here. Part of the reason I say maybe is because we know from several, and I'm going to show you in Scripture, several different events in Scripture where, where um, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, right? There, people are seeing what's happening in present heaven right now. At least in some part, in some way, people can see what's going on. Is everything that's going on on earth a good thing? No. no. Um, we see, uh, here's your first example, is the rich man and Lazarus. So we got, we got Lazarus and Abraham in a place called paradise, which, which literally Jesus just, you know, uses that word that, that means a gated garden, beautiful place. And yet, and yet they can see and hear the plea of the rich man when where is he? In hell. In that sad, horrible existence in hell. So that, that, that can be seen. I think at least in some level, we see this sorrow or this angst or this um, compassion, if you will, in present heaven and Jesus himself. Just jot this reference down. Acts 9, 4 to 5. Some of you will know automatically what that is. That's a guy named Saul. Um, and he was headed to uh, Damascus to go arrest and hopefully, in his mind, execute some heretics, followers of the way. He said, what's that? That was the church. That was the early first Christians. They were called followers of the way. He was headed there to arrest whole families, put them in prison, and have some of them executed because they weren't following the tradition of the Jews. And, of course, you know the history. He is accosted by King Jesus himself. There's this brilliant light. But Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has something to say to him. He says, Saul, Saul, I memorize this in the King James, why persecutest thou me. Why are you persecuting me? Now, stop right there. Was Saul persecuting Jesus? Did he throw Jesus in jail? Did Saul execute Jesus? No. Who, who, is, he, who is he persecuting? The followers of Jesus. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. And Jesus says, you're persecuting who? Me. Now, this has, this has really consistent um, biblical overtones to it. Because when I did a wedding yesterday for a, a young couple, uh, when she was a little girl, she was in our little after-school program here. And then I, I did her wedding yesterday, and it made me feel older than dirt. Um, I, I met her mom, hadn't seen her mom in years. And, she, and when, when we met, she didn't know who I was at first. And I said, I know, I, I've aged in dog years. That's why <laughs> I look ancient. I felt old. But this whole idea, and as I was counseling these kids, it says, you know, the Bible says that the two become one flesh. And what happens to her happens to what? You. What happens to you happens to her. So Jesus is, is uh, feeling the very persecution that his people are going through, his bride. Do you see that? And that's in present heaven. Are you with me? Am I a heretic yet? I'm just giving you scripture. 
All right. And by the way, Jesus still hurts for the suffering of his people. You realize that today? And I want, I want to say this, and he's not okay with it. He's not okay with it. Matter of fact, if you go read the rest of that history, what, is, what does he say later on in that, in that history? Um, when, when, when one is sent to, to get him and to help him, help Paul with his vision. He said, oh, God, do you, do you, you know who that is, don't you? That's the guy that's been killing us and hunting us down. He says, yeah, God's, and I'm paraphrasing. He goes, yeah, I know, Ananias, but here's the deal. He's, he's special to me, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. And boy, did Paul suffer for the name of Christ? Yeah, he sure did. So it's important Um, to understand that even Jesus had this hard time or this, this angst in heaven. Um, we'll see it in a little bit. We'll get there. Some of the other saints that are, are in present heaven right now, we're going to see in Revelation, um, are also wanting God to wreak judgment on those who are harming, had harmed them and were continuing to harm the church. So this no more tears timeline follows the final resurrection of the dead, the final judgments, especially the great white throne and a resurrected new earth. So from the, even now in present heaven, it's, it's, I think we have a little bit of confusion about what's going on there. But this, here's what I've try, I'm trying to say probably, and I've been unclear. Let me clear it up. In this no more tears thing is in the eternal heaven in the new earth. Are you with me? It's not yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. And it's not yet even in the present heaven because they're seeing all this stuff that's going on and it's a, it's a tough thing. So let me ask you this. Can you agree that in the eternal heaven, this new earth, a new heaven, and, and the new Jerusalem with a physical address on a new earth, that in this eternal heaven there will be no sorrow even for loved ones who aren't there? Can we agree that based on the scripture... When that verse says in Revelation 21, 4, uh, there's not going to be any more sorrow and no crying, no tears, no pain, no death. And God's going to wipe away those, those sad tears and you're never going to do that again. Can we just agree based on trusting this book that that's true? Are you with me? Can we agree with that? Now, then the only thing we have to do is answer one big hard YBH question. Yeah, but how? Okay, I agree that I'm not going to be sad, even though all of my nearest loved ones aren't going to be there. Okay, I'm going to trust the book. I'm going to trust what God says. So the only question we've got to answer is this hard question of, yeah, but how? How in the world can I be in heaven? My, my nearest loved ones, some that I gave birth to, literally in eternal torment, and I'm good with that. That's the question. Would you agree with me? You all with me? I can't tell no more breakfast in Sunday school anymore because y'all are sleeping. I was warned about that and I fear it's coming to pass. We're going to turn the air condition on in a minute here so, or open the doors. My mom will love that. <laughs> so let me see if, if I can help us work through that. And I understand that's a big if. So you see it on the board. We can agree that in the eternal heaven there will be no sorrow even for loved ones who aren't there. So now the only question is a big, yeah, but how? How am I going to be okay? How can we be okay with that? All right, are you ready for the answer? I see a lot of head shaking. Before I give you the answer, there's an old saying, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I'm just the guy carrying the water. <laughs> I didn't make it. I'm going to take it from the word. I'm going to show you some stuff. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not comfortable with it but I believe it, and it makes sense. It makes a whole lot more sense than universalism or divine amnesia, I'll tell you that. And it's consistent with the character of God, and that's part of the problem. We don't understand that. At the end of the day. So I'm, un, I'm just going to lay it out for you. You ready? Here we go. Here's the problem. Here's your problem, my problem. We currently have a diluted... An incomplete comprehension of the horribleness of sin and the holiness of God. What's that mean? 
That means we, we, we don't think our sin is as bad as it is or that God's as good as he is. And that's your problem. Your sin is way worse than you think it is. The sin of your children who may not be there is way worse than you can ever comprehend. And the holiness of God is way holier and way more heavy. The word holy means heavy. It's, it's so much heavier and weightier and massive than you're comprehending. And when you get both of those things on a whack, you get crazy thinking like, well, I'm, I'm going to be upset in heaven because my loved ones aren't going to be there. But if you get those two things right, the problem takes care of itself. And I know you're sitting there with your arms crossed and you have to show me that one. I figured you'd say that. So in Luke 19, put your finger there in Revelation. We're going back there. Go to Luke's gospel. By the way, Luke's a pretty cool guy. Uh, you know he was a Gentile? Pretty, pretty wild. He wasn't even a Jew. And guess what? He wrote more of the New Testament than anybody, even more than Paul, volume-wise. And he's a Gentile. I think God's got a sense of humor. Um, I'm sorry, Luke 19. I, gave, I might have said wrong. Luke 19. This is, you know this parable. Um, it's the parable of the minas, or, or you know it better as the parable of the talents, right? The rich ruler has all this stuff. I'm, I'm going to give you this portion of my wealth. You're going to get a little bit less, and I'm going to give you a smaller portion. But you guys go make it grow. I don't know when I'm coming back, but when I do come back, We'll see how you're done. And your future, you know, you'll be rewarded accordingly. Do you remember this? First guy does great, doubles it. Second guy does great, he doubles it. What the, what the guy with just one talent do? Not smart, right? Uh, he just buries it in the ground. He doesn't even put it in the bank. Which the master gets after him for. By the way, my opinion, that and $2 to get you a cup of coffee. My opinion, he buried it so that he could later go back and get it for himself. Just a thought, because he's, kind of, he's called wicked. And, the, and, and the master is pretty upset with him. Okay, so we know that whole thing, right? You think you know it all. I think you've heard that before. Um, and again, Jesus was, was a terrible socialist. Some accuse him of being, of, of being communistic or socialistic. Yeah, well, what he does here is he says, okay, take that one talent from that guy that just had one and give it to the guy that had the most. He's not a socialist. <laughs> he didn't split it all up amongst everybody equally. He said, no, give it to the guy that's going to work for it. Interesting, right? It's all in there. Um, verse 26, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given... So if you have, you're going to get more. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. We tend to end the story there. If you've got a red-letter edition Bible, like mine, the next verse is in red too. So who's saying this? Keep that in mind. Here's what he says. But, but, now nobody, I've never seen a coloring page for kids' Sunday school class on this verse. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slaughter them before me. Well, there's a reason you don't have a color page of that in Sunday school. <laughs> right? Jesus is saying this. Oh, they don't want me to rule over them? You bring them and you execute them in front of me. Hey, boys and girls, that's the King Jesus that you've bowed the knee to and he's not playing he said this. This is strong stuff. Um, Jesus is holy. And he therefore has the proper perspective of sin as cosmic treason against the rightful ruler over mankind himself and as deserving of execution. It's pretty strong, isn't it? And I know, you should, I wish you could be up here with me and see what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> I 
Again, I'm, the, I'm carrying the water, folks. The water is in there. That's just what it says. Because of who Jesus was, completely holy, he, he and only He had the proper perspective of that sin of rebellion against God Himself. Now here's a guy who did not have that perspective. Turn to your Bibles to Psalm 139. David. Now David had glimpses of that perspective, but he certainly didn't always live it out, did he, church? If you know anything about David. By the way, do you ever read the Psalms and scratch your head like me? We, because we are so unforgiving by our nature, aren't we? You know, I read some of the stuff David writes and I find myself saying to myself, hey Dave, you remember Bathsheba and that whole mess? That was you too, right? We tend to argue with the writers of Scripture. I want to remind you that David is writing under the inspiration of who? Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand the nuance of poetry. Um, I understand imprecatory praying, imprecatory poems. Um, and I've seen a lot of people try to explain this away. I understand this is not necessarily, we don't want to take our, our hardline theology out of poetry. However, it reflects good theology. It may not create it, but it reflects it. This one has messed me up more than anyone. I, I, straight in, straight, uh, one of David's straight prayers against his enemies, the whole thing is God get them and you know, make their death long and painful. I can understand that one. But Psalm 139, you all know what psalm that is, right? You, 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 yeah, it's, it's the one that you have searched me and known me. You know, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you even know what I'm going to think before I think it. And, and you know the words coming out of my mouth before they even get to my tongue. Right? And even so, your, hand is, your right hand is still on me. And that's the hand of acceptance. And then he talks about how God wove him together in the womb. This is, this is the pro-life uh, chapter, right? You knit me together in my mother's womb. In, my, in your book, all of my members were written when as yet there were none of them, David says. He said, oh... I am fearfully and wonderfully made that my soul knoweth right well. I got that one, God. I, wow. What's he doing? He's extolling the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men in the first part the, and, and the creativity of God in his creative prowess in just putting a human being and literally knitting them together in the womb of their mom. Interesting thing, an aside here, I, but I, I got to share it with you. Um, years ago, when they, we finally got some good microscopes that could see stuff that we couldn't see earlier, I forget what, they were looking for something in some fetal tissue, um, but what they discovered is that when those cells began to split in the creation of a human being, one of their questions was, how do Okay, they're splitting, but how are they staying together and splitting? Right? Does that make sense? How, how is it that, how does this work? And literally under, under uh, I forget what the name of those microscopes are, they're super powerful. But under this microscope, they could see it. And the cells, they, said, they say this, those cells as they split, literally knit, are knit together to the next cell as it splits. Isn't that amazing? When David said, Poetically, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's exactly what it looks like under the microscope. Isn't that fascinating? Because God, that, that tells you that who wrote that? He used David's mind and ideas and his love of poetry. But it's truth, isn't it? So he's extolling God. And then he's, David says it's personal. You, how in the world? God, you think about me. Look at verse 17. He said, oh, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand, and when I awake, I'm still with you. He is amazed that God has anything to do with him, and that God is, he's constantly 
got David in his care and has given David thoughts about him, about God himself. This is a beautiful uh, exposition and, 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 and praise song to the majesty of our Creator, Sovereign Father in heaven, right? Look at the next verse. Verse 18. Or verse, uh, verse 19. <laughs> he just finishes up. When I wake up, I can't believe it. I'm still with you. We're still, in a, we're still related. Look at, look at 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For, look at, for they speak against you, against God wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Now look at verse 21. Do not I, what's that word? Hate them, O Lord, who hate you. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Verse 22, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And then oddly enough, verse 23, because David knows he probably can't do this exactly right. <laughs> verse 23, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me along path of everlasting life. So pretty, I hate those who hate you. Oh, that God, oh, that you would slay the wicked. And this beautiful poem, and then all of a sudden, he turns it, and there's all this violent requesting. Why? When you understand the holiness of God, you see the sinfulness of man for what it is, cosmic treason worthy of death. You know what the problem is? Could I, could I boil it down to this? You're way too familiar and in love with your sin, and you don't love God, and you don't understand His holiness. That's our problem. I'm carrying the water, folks. I'm just carrying the waters, and it's there. Fascinating. It gets worse. Go to Revelation 6. <laughs> Remember, I'm just carrying the water. Revelation 6. So in Psalm 139, David hates the enemies of God and he longs for their destruction. This is interesting to me. Revelation 6. Look at verse 9. Now what's happening here is these people have been martyred and um, they're in heaven. They're, they're saints that have been martyred for their faith. Um, look at verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held. So these are martyrs. Look what the martyrs are doing. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. These people had been martyred for standing up for the truth. And, and they're living... By the way, we're going to pray in heaven. They're praying. They're saying to God, how much longer before you go down and destroy those who destroyed us. And they're crying out. That's prayer, right? They're crying out to God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that they're actually crying out. So they're tears in, in present heaven. They're, they're, they're kind of uh, concerned about this. Saying, come on, God. And what does God say? A few more of you are yet to die. Boy, what does that tell us too? Put a little pause in that button right there. God's got your death planned as much as He got your life planned. And just like you had no power over what day you were born, you don't have much to say about the day you die. God's got that figured out. And these people were going to die a martyr's death. So right there, we have people, they're crying out for justice. Justice. That's a big deal. But we still just don't quite get it yet. 
We don't quite understand it. You're in Revelation. Turn over one more to 14. Revelation 14. Look at verse 9. Look at this harsh judgment that is owed to everyone who rejects the king. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, listen to, listen to what happens as a result of it, and that is a sign of rejecting the rulership of, of, of God, of Jesus as king. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, undiluted, into, his, into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? God's not playing. It's because he is so holy. And sin is such an affront to that holiness. It will be dealt with. Brothers and sisters, if you walk out of here with nothing else, not the main point of the sermon today, but it certainly is a proper point. God does, God's serious about sin and he's not fooling around. And if, and if we're so concerned about our loved ones being in heaven and that we're going to be miserable in heaven, which I'm going to show you here in a second and we're going to be done, then that's not going to be true for you. We ought to be doing something about that today while there's life. Amen. What are you doing with those relatives? What are you doing with those loved ones? We need to be bringing the gospel to them. So how? Okay, so we see it. I, I just kind of made a, a small case with some hard scriptures, but they're there. Go. I just carried the water to you. And my point is, God's not playing with sin, and it's going to be judged, and, 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 the, and the people that drink the undiluted cup of the wrath of God have earned it because their sin is so bad compared to God's holiness, which is so pure. It's serious. And, and here's the thing. Hear me. Some of those people are going to be our people. That's hard. Our spouses. Our children. How, how can we be enjoying heaven when, when we know, when we know that? Here's a solution. I think this is the answer. And it, and it seems a little childish, but it's not. And here it is. You ready? We'll be changed. We're going to be changed. We're not going to be the same people. How are we going to be changed? Let me share a few, share a few scriptures. And then we're going to ask God to open our hearts to receive hard truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, jot it down. That's the love chapter. Again, another weird thing in the love chapter is this little, seems like a parenthesis, but it's not. Where Paul says in verse 12, he says, But now we see in a mirror dimly. Now you have to understand, first century mirrors were were polished brass. They weren't like, I mean, our mirrors today, wow. <laughs> I mean, you are seeing exactly what you look like. For some of us, that's a good thing. Some of us, not so much. <laughs> uh, not then. Their, their mirrors were, were dim at best. So when he says that, that's what he's talking about. So get the idea of trying to look into a shiny piece of metal to get an idea of what you look like. He says, but now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So how much, it's the difference between looking in a shiny Coke can versus standing across from someone and seeing them, looking in a mirror of today. Now, but, and that, then he makes this same comparison. He says, for now I know in part, but then I shall know just as 
I also am known. My knowledge right now is about as dim as a shiny Coke can. You tracking with Paul here? And he's saying this in the context of love. The reason y'all can't get love figured out like totally is because it's so dim right here. It's the sin thing and we're all messed up. But the day's coming that we're going to get a good mirror and we're going to see like in living color. Our knowledge is going to be complete. We're going to be changed. And not just the physical body, our affections. Here's another one. Jot this one down. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are now the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But here's what he says. We know that when he, talking about King Jesus, appears, look at this, we will be like him. Do you get that? Why? He says, because we will see him just as he is. Now, I'm not the sharpest crayon in a box, but when I read that, because I've, I've pondered this, how, how can my mind change so much that my own children could be cast into hell for all of eternity, and I'm fine with that? Because when I see Jesus... I'm going to be just like him. And he's the same guy at the end of Luke that says, okay, now bring those guys to me and you slaughter them before me because they rebelled. That's how bad sin is and how good I am. The Puritans used to say this when dealing with this very question. They would say that mothers, the end of the judgment at that great white throne, that mothers would literally cheer as their own children are thrown into the bottomless pit for all of eternity. Now that's hard. I'm going to give you that. But is it true? Is it true? Here's a thought. We will finally, fully love what God loves and hate what God hates. When we see him, we will be like him. And he's holy. And all of his judgments are just and righteous altogether. Let me read you this quote from J.I. Packer in, in Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. Packer puts it this way. He said, God the Father who now pleads with mankind to accept the reconciliation that Christ death secured for all. And God the Son, our appointed judge who wept over Jerusalem, will in a final judgment express wrath and administer justice against rebellious humans. God's holy righteousness will hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at the last against all who have defied him. God will judge justly. And he goes on to say, and all the angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it. So it seems inescapable that we shall with them approve the judgment of persons, rebels, whom we have known and loved. What's he saying? He's saying it a little bit nicer what the Puritans said. Our affections are going to be so pure because the sin is going to be gone in us finally and fully. That, listen, that we won't love anything or anyone anywhere near the level of our devotion to Christ, to the Father and the Spirit. We'll, we will be in that holiness. We will see it, and it will change your affections. So much so, That you will love heaven. And you will not shed one tear. Because it will not be a loss. As we have gained Christ. All the judgments of God are and will be righteous. And we as saints will rejoice in them. Jot this down. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. 
Revelation 19, verses 1 through 3. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Listen to this, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. What side are you on? It matters. Sin is not okay. Not in your life, not in the life of your children. And that's why we must never confirm our children in their sin, but always confront them in it. Even with a limited understanding that we have of it. Because we're going to have a full one one day. Amen? Let me read you this quote, and then I'll, I'll conclude. This is Randy Alcorn himself. Interesting take on uh, heaven and those who won't be there and how we're going to handle that. He says, although it will inevitably sound harsh, I offer this further thought in a sense. None of our loved ones will be in hell. Only some whom we once loved. Hang in there with them. <laughs> Our love for our companions in heaven will be directly linked to God, the central object of our love. We will see Him in them, those that we're in heaven with. We will not love those in hell because when we see Jesus as He is, we will love only and will only want to love whoever and whatever pleases and glorifies and reflects Him. What we loved in those who died without Christ was God's beauty we once saw in them. When God forever withdraws from them, I think they'll no longer bear His image and no longer reflect His beauty. Although they will be the same people without God, they'll be stripped of all the qualities we once loved. Therefore, paradoxically, in a sense, they will not be the people we loved. And then he admits, I cannot prove biblically what I just stated, but I think it rings true, even if the thought is horrifying. What's the bottom line? Bottom line is no, universalism's untrue. We're not all going to make it. And no, God's not going to give you spiritual amnesia. Instead, on the new eternal earth, however, you will be changed. And your affections, your love is going to be changed. You will love God more and better and be truly one in your devotions and affections. You will rejoice in God's righteous judgments along with the angels. And here's the reality. And I think it's the only way you can look at this and stay sane. We all deserve hell. Amen? There's not a person in this room, even from the babies in here, that deserve heaven. None of us. And the fact that God in His grace would reach down and reveal our sin to us, that we might run to His Son who bore that sin on the cross, resurrected Him on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, is absolutely amazing, as the song says. <laughs> Isn't it? The fact that you and I will be there. And it should inspire us to do our part to implore our nearest loved ones to repent and believe the gospel and cling to Christ Jesus as Lord and King. To not let our love for our children get in the way of our love for God. Because I will say to you, you are loving your children best when you are loving your God most. And when we encourage our children in sin or sinful lifestyles, sinful choices, and allow them 
without a word of rebuke from us as parents, even as adult children, to, to plow that path that leads to perdition, what will we say on that day? I've been amazed over the years, and I know I'm not exempt. I, I, it could happen to me, and I know it. So I don't stand in judgment of anybody. I fear for myself in this. But I have watched Christian parents over the years, especially as their kids get older and do stupid things that are an affront to God and His Word. They just cave. Not a word. Well, you know, we'll fix this. It'll be all right one day. And then we'll get them back. Brothers and sisters, this ought not so to be. Because this day's coming. I don't know about you. I'd like to have my children standing with me. I don't want to have to put this to the test. But if I have to, I trust Him. And I trust that I will love Him so much that my tears will be gone never to return for all of eternity. Randy ended this chapter by saying this, and I close. Hell will have no power over heaven. None of hell's misery will ever veto any of heaven's joy. So at the end of the day, what am I, what am I supposed to do with that? How can I be happy in heaven if my nearest loved ones are in hell? You're going to be changed. Watching that now, in your unchanged, unglorified state, not having seen God, would be absolutely torturous for any parent. Amen? Your heart will be pure. You won't be just any parent. You'll be just like Him. You'll see sin for what it is, and those who commit it and have rejected Christ for what they are. You say, preacher, did I... Mm. I just, I don't feel good. I don't, I don't feel good about this message. I don't like it. Oh, I understand. I'm not asking you to feel good about the message. I'm not asking you to like the message. I'm asking you to embrace the truth of it. I don't like going to the doctor or the dentist or anything that might be remotely painful because it's the only thing I'm allergic to in the world is pain, discomfort. I don't like any of that, but I need it. So do you. We've been to see the good doctor today, and he's telling us the truth. And I think we might have some repenting to do. But we might learn to love him here most and not give an inch no matter who is running away from him and rebelling against our king. And we've got to find our voice. Got to find our voice. Because we love them. But they must know we love him most. And you must love him most. Because that's what you're going to be changed into one day. And none of hell's sorrows can ever penetrate the portal of heaven to steal any of its joy. And I can go out into eternity on that. Would you stand?